Well, thank you, Mr. Dooley. And of course, to reiterate, Mr. Dooley is that famous fictional Chicago bartender who became the favorite vehicle of journalist turned satirist Finley Peter Dunn. Now, Mr. Dooley is the originator of the quote that is the basis of our service today, again, suggested by our auction winner, Ginger Helgeson, which is sometimes incorrectly ascribed to being about ministry or other service professions, and most commonly repeated as, the role of the newspaper is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. But true to Dewey's form, the original quote is a bit more of a biting critique of the press. Originally published in the late 1890s, the complete quote reads as such. The newspaper does everything for us. It runs the police force and the banks, commands the militia, controls the legislature, baptizes the young, marries the foolish, comforts the afflicted, afflicts the comfortable, buries the dead, and roasts them afterward. <laughs> now remember that these are the words of a fictional bartender created by a successful young journalist working at one of the most prominent metropolitan newspapers of the day, the, the Chicago Evening Post. As we heard from our opening reading from the author of the play, Chicago at the turn of the last century was a mess, literally and figuratively. Workers' rights were non-existent, child labor the norm, pollution and sewage were everywhere, and corruption of both government and business made the wealth divide there nearly as extreme as had existed in feudal Europe in the Dark Ages. The military was regularly used to uh, crush protesters, and the influx of poor European immigrants was in full swing, and that of uh, southern African Americans to northern industrial cities like Chicago had just begun. The famed 1893 Columbian World Exposition, launched the same year as the first Mr. Dooley article appeared, created an isolated oasis on the southern shores of Lake Michigan, a gleaming white city made for show. The entire complex, save for one building, was made of paste and created a pristine illusion that would obscure the festering cesspool of waste, corruption, and third world poverty that existed for the vast majority of Chicago's nearly two million citizens. Now, I'd argue that the, uh, the time could not have been more ripe for what has become perhaps the truest form of political commentary, that of satire. Mr. Dooley was the perfect vehicle for satire. An immigrant with an outsider's perspective on American culture, a biting sarcasm, and the ability to articulate the mainstream viewpoint to its logical conclusion, pointing out its absurdity through humor. Because as a new group of immigrants, the Irish weren't particularly respected in America, Mr. Dooley could get away with his biting critique as told through a thick dialect 
in a manner and acceptance impossible if told with a more mainstream voice. Initially only published in Chicago, the first year's worth of articles focused heavily on the Columbian Exposition and the corruption rampant in its execution. Soon, though, the articles would expand to satirize city council meetings and eventually even national politics. The Spanish-American War of 1898, which itself was fueled by yellow journalism working as a propaganda machine for the McKinley administration, became a frequent topic of Mr. Dooley's columns and launched him and author Dunn into the national spotlight. Despite regularly lampooning President Theodore Roosevelt in the following decade, the president himself and a large number of his family were fans. And Roosevelt even invited Dunn to Washington for an audience. Can you imagine our current president asking someone like Michelle Wolf or Stephen Colbert to meet with him at the White House? <laughs> As ludicrous as that might sound, our founding fathers were pretty explicit on the issue, writing the freedom of speech and the press into the very first amendment to the United States Constitution, which says, in entirety, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, later court decisions would, of course, solidify the fact that the term Congress in the Constitution also applies to other government agents, including state and local municipalities. The question is, why on earth would our founders have been so divided on everything else, like whether or not one person could own another person, or whether a slave counted as a person, a half a person, or three-fifths of a person for census purposes, and still be so adamant that freedom of speech and the press be completely unfettered. Well, the truth is that despite their many failings, even our founders understood that democracy itself requires an enlightened, educated, and well-informed polis in order to be effective. People cannot be expected to vote in their own best interest, which is really the governing principle of democracy in any form, if they do not know the conditions that exist or the work actually being done by the government. The press serves as a counter to the government, which cannot, by definition, be trusted to regulate itself or always tell its citizens the whole truth. Don't believe me? Just read the transcripts of the latest Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Sanders daily press briefings, complete with alternate facts and such. Now, of course, it's possible for the government to limit some speech, and the courts have upheld as constitutional several different situations in which speech may, in fact, be illegal, even the speech of the press. But it's really very limited, reduced to statements with libelous intent or effect, which are themselves based on untrue or unverifiable claims. 
But what has not been limited generally has been the freedom of the press to communicate the facts that they themselves can independently verify. Even those cases involving sensitive and classified information, the publication of which could jeopardize national security and or American lives, is not in itself cause to censure a journalistic publication. Now, many or at least some of us are old enough here to remember the Johnson and Nixon administrations of the last century and the numerous lies they told the American people regarding the war in Vietnam. A former Pentagon worker by the name of Daniel Ellsberg, who incidentally both graduated from my high school in Michigan and is a Unitarian Universalist, realized the gravity of the situation and decided to act. In a landmark episode that would test the boundaries of both free speech and the freedom of the press, Ellsberg would secretly photocopy and release thousands of pages of classified government documents regarding not only the real death toll of the Vietnam War, but also the realization that both the Nixon and Johnson administrations have had that the war was simply not winnable. Now, there were several important effects of this disclosure. After publishing the first of what has come to be known as Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers, the New York Times won a Supreme Court case, essentially upholding the freedom of the press over the right of the government to suppress so-called classified information. Now, Ellsberg himself eventually got around the legal implications of his actions when U.S. Senator Mike Gravel from Alaska, also a fellow Unitarian Universalist, agreed to read 4,100 pages of the Pentagon Papers into the official congressional record through his Senatorial Subcommittee on Public Buildings and Grounds, thus declassifying the information they contained. But if this weren't enough, perhaps even more importantly, out of fear about what Ellsberg might do next, the newly inaugurated Nixon administration would create a specialized and secret task force of thugs to conduct espionage on Ellsberg, including raiding the office of his personal therapist. This secret rogue group of president's personal spies became known as the Plumbers, supposedly because Nixon wanted them to help flush out problems like Ellsberg. Now, the Plumbers would later plunder the offices of the Democratic National Committee, then housed at the Watergate Hotel, thank you, in Washington during the 1972 election cycle which would eventually be uncovered by the investigative journalists, Woodward and Bernstein, whose work effectively ended the Nixon administration. It is pretty powerful stuff for those accused today of proliferating fake news. And is really as true an example as I can conjure about how journalists might indeed afflict the comfortable. But it's true that the relationship between the press and the government has been more strained now than it has been in quite some time, maybe as far back as the Nixon administration even. You need to look no further than the fallout 
um, from last week's White House Correspondents' Dinner, the address by comedian Michelle Wolf. Now, the Correspondents' Dinner is a tradition that goes back to 1921. 1921, so almost 100 years. It involves the members of the press and the administration to gather at a gala for the kind of entertainment and mutual appreciation, an occasion often lifting up the importance of the press in the democratic process. For the last 40 years or so, the Correspondents' Dinner has featured a prominent comedian who's been hired essentially to roast the people in the room including the press corps and the president. Now, how many people here have, have seen the complete tape of Michelle Wolf's address? One, two, three, four, five of us. How many have heard negative things about what she said? More than five of us. <clears throat> so fair enough, if you have an opinion on these matters, I, I suggest that you watch it. It's available on YouTube. Um, not surprising, her remarks poked fun at the Republicans, the Democrats, the administration, and the press. And guess who were offended by her comments? The Democrats, the Republicans, the administration, and the press. Now, to be sure, some of it's kind of vulgar. Not over-the-top vulgar by roast standards, but pretty vulgar for normal years, I guess. She aptly said of the press that despite the dizzying amount of news and news coverage today, the major outlets only cover a tiny segment of topics. And the press itself is benefiting from the madness of this administration. She says, quote, I think what no one in this room wants to admit, again, she's talking to the press corps, no one in this room wants to admit is that Trump has helped all of you. He couldn't sell steaks or vodka or water or college or ties or Eric, but he's helped you. He's helped you sell your papers and your books and your TV, and you helped create this monster, and now you are profiting off of him." End quote. But perhaps even more importantly, she ends with the line, thank you, good night, Flint still doesn't have clean water. And for doing her job, which was quite bravely telling truth to power in a humorous way, she's been vilified. So I guess what's most concerning to me about the nature of the press these days is the fact we've seemed to lose sight of the importance of information and the, the ability to have civil discourse among people who do not inherently agree. Our news organizations have begun to be so polarized as to speak to only one side of, of any issue. With Fox News on the right and MSNBC on the left and seemingly no real middle ground remaining. Business continues to flood both the media and the government with money, compelling both institutions to consider the economic ramifications of their actions, either in the loss of sponsors or political donors, respectively. The Chicago Evening Post, where readers first saw our friend Mr. Dooley over 100 years ago, had nearly a 100-year run of publication. For the last five decades of its existence was a sibling publication of the Chicago Daily News and the Sun-Times, 
all of which were headquartered and housed at 401 North Wabash in Chicago, Illinois. <coughs> Does anyone know what stands at 401 North Wabash today? You want to guess? Trump Tower, Trump Tower Chicago. You, you can't make this up. <laughs> in our daily lives, we've seen rhetoric ramp up and the true dialogue all but disappear. Legitimate concerns about the oppression of segments of our population dismissed as identity politics. Abhorrent racism upheld as white nationalism. Legitimate concerns about the oppression of segments of our population dismissed as identity politics. Abhorrent racism upheld as white nationalism where people really believe that the Confederate battle flag is a symbol of cultural pride, or that wearing a Black Lives Matter button is akin to advocating police violence, when neither could be further from the truth. But before we close this morning, I would like to lift up something from our own discourse here at Bradford UU. Many of the members here attended our special congregational meeting that followed service last Sunday debating and ultimately passing, unanimously, I might add, our Black Lives Matter resolution, and then debating and narrowly defeating a bid to post publicly our commitment to racial justice via a sign facing Sheridan Road. While not everyone was happy with the results, I felt like it was a strong step in the right direction. Not only in affirming officially our work around racism and cultures of domination, but in our own practice of tolerance and dialogue. The conversation, though passionate and heated at times, was never anything less than civil. Having been here still less than two years at this point, I've had to rely on the reports of others in this congregation to discern what this discussion was like compared to some of those we've had in our past. To a person, I've heard that this one was better. We are better at respecting each other's voices and opinions. We're better uh, at being open to working together to move forward in a way that may or may not have been the case 10 years ago. The 46 votes cast at the meeting reflected nearly half of all possible voting members of this congregation, meaning participation for this special congregational meeting which was delayed once due to snow in April, by the way, participation was higher than in many of our annual congregational meetings where we approve our budget and elect our leadership. And even though the congregation ultimately voted not to post a sign at this time, there were more votes for signage than there were against it, meaning we are moving toward becoming more public, therefore more accountable, to our social justice work outside as well as inside these walls. So thank you to our Black Lives Matter Task Force for all the work they do on our behalf. Thank you for everyone who participated last week. Again, a major step in the right direction. And ultimately, thank you, Mr. Dooley. Thank you, Mr. Dunn. Thank you, Woodward and Bernstein. Thank you, all of those journalists and satirists who are not afraid to speak their truths to power. And if we, if we can only continue to speak and hear our truths in love, we will keep learning, we will keep growing, 
and we will be making the world a slightly better place, one civil discourse at a time. May it be so. Blessed be, and amen.